and welcome to The Bunker, your need to know on news and politics five days a week. I'm Ros Taylor. We all know people are fed up with the Tories and want a change, but what kind of change do they want? Do they even know? That's the question that's gnawing away at the Conservatives as they wonder if there's any way they can turn things around before the next general election. And with me to discuss it is Ben Walker, senior data journalist at The New Statesman. Welcome back to The Bunker, Ben. Thank you for having me again. Oh, it's always a pleasure. That's why we have you back. I could reel off dozens of things that are going wrong in Britain today, and I'm sure so could many of our listeners. But what do the polls tell us about what people care most about? Cost of living. It's always been the cost of living. And despite distractions on Northern Ireland, on budgets, on boats, on trans people, on bringing David Cameron back, the priority amongst the media in Britain, amongst all Britons, has been we want solutions on the crisis in the cost of living. Now, of course, there are other issues people can be motivated by. In the winter months, normally concern about the NHS does rise a little bit because it's NHS winter crisis. A relative tends to is more likely to die in the winter as well. And, you know, you, you tend to place more attention to it. We are noticing increased attention towards immigration. I think the last time I, I came on this podcast, I, I was saying, "Look, look, Britons aren't really that bothered by it. It's not. It's a bit of a distraction. It's a bit of a bit of a non non-starter in terms of voter motivating stuff." Now it's starting to play a more prominent role. And what it is, it's just um, those most vexed about immigration are very geographically constrained type of people. They're based in certain parts of Northern England, the Yorkshire coalfields, the east of England, Boston, Skegness, you know, Brexit heartlands, basically. And a year ago, they weren't that big in number. Now, the people most vexed by immigration who, you know, rank it as number one is like one in five to one in three Britons. Nevertheless, the cost of living, inflation, sorting the economy, getting some sense of stability remains the priority for all Britons. And, you know, if you compare it to the previous elections, because this is going to be an election year, in 2010, the economy was front and centre, but it was competing with immigration and health and education, all other things. It was very much quite a, you know, a three-way split. In 2015, it was immigration and the economy. In 2017 and 19, it was Brexit and the economy. And now really it is just the economy now. And sorry to ramble so much, but you can probably see the strategy coming from the Conservatives, which is this. If they want to rally their base, they need to push the immigration issue up the agenda so it competes with the economy. And when they do that, they might rally their base, but they also might turn people off because people think they're doing such a terrible job. But uh, to, to stay on that, sorry, yeah, it's just the cost of living for now. We know that Sunak got the importance of the NHS last year because it was one of his five pledges, albeit, you know, clearly one that he has not met in terms of waiting lists. But another was bringing inflation down, which is beginning to happen with a bit of an uptick at the end of last year. Has that cut through with the public yet? Or is there no sign of that? And they still feel prices are rising too much and the economy generally is in a bad way. Is the rate of inflation going down? Yes, obviously, objectively, it is. We know it is, despite a little bump. Are people feeling it? Uh, no. <laughs> this is the reality of politics. It's, it's uh, feelings matter more than facts. They always have and they always will. If you feel like your incomes are being squeezed, if you feel like your community is going to dust, you're going to vote accordingly with that in mind. That The feeling amongst Britons that they have any relief is very much non-existent and has been for the past few years. And that's why I've always said whatever distractions that the government has tried to put out or whatever issue politicians or SW1 or, or journalists such as ourselves have tried to talk about, they've never cut through because people are feeling the squeeze a little too hard. The, there's one thing that YouGov do, they do this tracker, which is like, how are you feeling? And uh, are you stressed? 
Are you frustrated? Are you optimistic? Are you content? And content and happy and anything positive has been at quite, quite, quite low. And it, I wouldn't say it's comparable to COVID, but it's closer to COVID than any other election, the, the levels of stress and the levels of, you know, disaffection with the, with the status quo. So, you know, are people feeling the recovery? Not really. They may feel it in their bank balance. You know, some people might be better off with certain taxes, but, you know, that's that's offset by, by a rising cost of living that is still rising, maybe not by as much in terms of speed, but it, it's still rising and no Britain, Britons are not feeling it yet. You mentioned there are some places that are more concerned about migration than others. And I wanted to drill down into that a bit because there's a distinction between illegal and legal migration that is obviously very important to people. But they are also confused about the actual levels, the actual numbers of people coming into this country. And there was a poll last week, wasn't there, that revealed the gulf between the numbers that people think are coming in and the actual net migration figure. Every time you ask the Britain, the, the British public, you ask them, you know, how many people do you think are Muslim? How many people do you think uh, whatever? How much do you think we spend on foreign aid? The numbers are always wrong. They're never going to be closer to the truth. I'll be honest with you. Um, I think it's when you talk about millions, billions, trillions, you just don't appreciate how big the numbers are. It's hard to conceive because, to be honest with you, most of us here, sorry, almost all of us here are never going to come close to figures such as these. So I think asking them specifically, you know, how many immigrants do you think are coming to Britain? They don't have a clue. They will never have a clue because most Britons are not watching the news every day. Most Britons are not logged on to things as, as much as much as we are. They're, they're, they've got nine to five jobs. They're not paying attention to it. And these numbers are just, you know, they think, oh, it's probably a lot anyway. Okay, that, that's the sentiment that exists, right? Most Britons do believe too many people are coming to the country. It does, the numbers need to go down. Now that's the general sentiment. But then you ask on, oh, well, what type of immigrants do you want? You want certain doctors? You think we should plug the skills gap in the NHS? You think we should get fruit pickers? You think we should get students? You think we should get whatever? Once you cut it, once you sort of add a bit of nuance and you ask by certain type of people, Britons then become a little less hostile. It's where it's the, it's the sentiment, the median sentiment in the country is rather hostile. We've always been like that, and that has never really changed. It's drifted downwards recently since the UK's vote to leave the EU. It's all relative, but the, the level of hostility to, to, to continued immigration from the rest of the world ha has really drifted downwards. It's still plurality against, but, but you know, it, it has gone down. But it's when you ask on what type of people you want that there is a bit more support. You know, it, it, it's all about framing this type of debate. It's, if you frame it around the types of people who want to come in, pro-immigration politicians can certainly win it. But the sentiment, you're, you, you're up against a very anti-sentiment. You've got to argue with that in mind. You've got to be very careful how you, you frame this debate. Among the people who are really seriously concerned about small boats, concerned enough to be quite angry, potentially, with Rishi Sunak about it and about illegal migration in general, what do we know about who they plan to vote for? Well, Oh, <laughs> here's the thing, um, and this is this is where this is where I, I start to criticise my own trade polling potentially because um, th there is a risk here, right? So, so, so for the unawares, I think most 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 of your listeners probably know this. When you do an opinion poll, you get a thousand people, you put them together, you try and make it representative of the UK based on census. And then you also do it based on former studies of how they voted, how much attention they like to pay to politics and all the rest of it. There is a perception that in polling now, there are too many people too aware of the news. So they're too aware of what's going on in the Middle East. They're too aware of what's going on with the boats. Too, they, they, they pay attention to the budget. 
right? And, and there are some polls sometimes taken immediately after the Chancellor's budget, which find, you know, 80 to 90% of us have an opinion on how that budget went. You know, no, no. How many people have heard the news about the budget? Very few people. So there is a perception in polling that maybe we are overrepresenting, we are oversampling people with too much attention on the news. And what that means is maybe we are oversampling people who are vexed by borders, boats, and people who are consequently going to vote for the Reform Party. Now, so though, to, so to get to, to answer your question, really, those most vexed by borders do indicate a likelihood to either stop voting altogether. They used to be big fans of Boris Johnson. They, were, they formed a key part of Boris Johnson's winning coalition in 2019. Always remember that voters for one party are a coalition of voters. They come from different places. And uh, in 2019, they voted for Johnson very, very enthusiastically. Once he fell from grace, once trust came in, once Sunak came in, they stopped, you know, stopped paying attention to politics. And now some of them are saying they might go to reform. We just don't know how many. We know there is some seepage from the Tories to reform. We know there is some seepage from apathetic voters to reform, but we just don't know how many, because this is the problem with apathetic voters. They don't like voting normally. So we should take any, perhaps all polls about which mention reform with a pinch of salt. Is that what you're saying? I would just say, when you look at the reform number, consider this, in every by-election, every local election, unlike UKIP 2010 to 15, by the way, they're underperforming. So how about this? When UKIP were polling 5 to 10% in the polls, they were doing really well in by-elections. They were putting out a show. They were getting angry people out to vote. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know a voter that UKIP was appealing to that reform isn't now, or vice versa, if you know what I mean. The evidence is the polls are so far, so far overstating reform, but we don't know by how much, and we don't know if it's the kind of voter that's going to turn out at a general election, but not a local by-election. We don't know. It's all a bit of an uncertainty. We, we, are, we are in new ground. We're a more swingier electorate than ever before. Things, you know, fresh times abound. There's an abiding belief on the Tory backbenches that a really generous tax cut could make the difference. Not necessarily inheritance tax, which I think people and the Conservative Party are starting to realise is unlikely to help the vast majority of, of voters in this country but say a bigger cup in national insurance or a few pence off the headline rate of income tax. Now, I was thinking of asking you, is that borne out in the polling? But it's going to be a diff difficult question, isn't it? Because if you ask people, would you like a tax cut? They are going to say yes. Is there any way that the polling can reflect the trade-offs that are implicit in a tax cut, do you think? Or have we just not got to that stage? It's hard uh, you, because there are polls which ask, do you think we should raise more money to spend on the NHS? Would you be happy to be taxed more if we spent it on X, Y, Z? You know, we do get a lot of polls which show that and normally the poll does the job for itself. It, it finds, you know, if, if you if you ask the country, do you think, would you pay, you know, 2% more tax if it meant more money for the NHS? Most people would say yes, because they think the NHS is a very valuable service. You ask them if we should pay more tax, if it would be more money, more money for defence, most people say yes, but not quite by as much. Generally speaking, all voters like the idea of spending more on public services. Most voters are more ready than not to countenance the idea of paying more taxes. But that sentiment is quite weak now. YouGov run this quite, quite good tracker, which is, are we taxing and spending the right amount? And it's too much or too little. And in 2019, most people said we are spending, you know, too little and we're taxing too little. 
Okay, so that that type of sentiment beat out the taxing too much and spending too much. Okay, now, however, it's not swapped, but taxing too much has just overtaken the spending too little. Does that make sense? We're taxing. So more people think we're taxing too much. We're spending too much. But I think most people would also agree the NHS doesn't have enough money. Defence doesn't have enough money. Housing, education doesn't have enough money. What you're seeing in the polling, and this is where polling has its limitations, is you're just seeing people lashing out, maybe saying, you know, uh, my cost of living is through the roof. I don't want anything else. And I think anyone would take a tax cut. You know, the, <laughs> I think inheritance tax cut is more a distraction. I think, although bear this in mind, a lot of Britons do think they would come under inheritance tax cut in, in, insofar as it would apply to them, even though it wouldn't. You know, so everyone has an opinion on inheritance tax cut, inheritance tax, even though it won't apply to them. So to answer the question in a long winded way again, so sorry, polling, it's hard to do. Most people would be prepared to pay higher taxes if, and in the question word, wording you put in, it will mean more money for an attractive service. But in general, though, no tax cuts, everyone will say yes to. Did you know council tax is the third most unpopular tax in the country? which is terrible news for us councillors here. It is, given the state that the councils are in, especially. Yeah. Ultimately, what matters is what voters in swing seats think, rather than places which are solidly Labour or Tory. Now, given the size of the Labour poll lead at the moment, there may be more swing seats than... Uh, perhaps we're even expecting. But what do we know about opinions in those swing seats? Well, it depends on what you what, what type of swing seats you want to talk about, because uh, the swing seats of today, even if, you know, let, let, let's assume Labour's lead isn't 20 points as it is in the polls now. Let's assume it's, what, five or six points or seven points. So, so that's a standard lead like David Cameron had, and it might get you a majority. The swing seats there are would not have been the swing seats of 13, 14, 15 years ago. They're different now. They're more northern, they're more so-called red wally, they're more Brexit-leaning. And they're also, but you've also got other seats down south, blue wall, if you want to call them, more affluent, remain-leaning, suburb, commuterville-type places like like Kingswood on the outskirts of Bristol or, or the whole of Hertfordshire, basically. And I think what I've noticed over the past year and a bit is normally in different parts of the country, there's different opinions. And I I did point out earlier that immigration, anxiety about immigration is most concentrated in the Yorkshire coalfields, in the Lincolnshire coast, in East Anglia, in Essex. You know, they're extremely white places, I should make a point of. But generally speaking, the swing from Tory to Labour is about as great in the marginals in the traditional marginals, as it is in the affluent marginals, as it is in the Brexit-leaning marginals. This is this is the thing. Normally, you would assume that in the marginals, things are more swingy. No, not anymore, because voters are not as entrenched as they used to be. They have started to consider alternative parties. And if, uh, if listeners could hark their minds back to the local elections of May, I don't know if anybody remembers them, but I do. It's what I spend most of my life preparing for. Labour made substantial gains across the country, but not by as much as some people expected. You know, I think they made a gain of 500 seats, 500 council seats, and they were expected to make a gain of 1,000. And the reason because it was for that 
was that the Liberal Liberal Democrats and the Greens made substantial gains too. And what we were seeing in these um, seats where Labour don't normally have strength, so, you know, think of rural Suffolk, rural Kent, rural, well, anywhere, basically, you did see the Liberals and the Greens step in where Labour couldn't. And they saw the swing to them was on a scale you normally see in battleground seats. The swing against the Conservatives transcends marginal, safe. It is everywhere. It's astounding. It's not something we've seen for quite some time. And there was always this assumption that the major swings you're going to see at the next election are going to be in marginals. I'm not so sure anymore. I think what you have now is an exhaustion with the governing party that will see, first of all, a lot of their base will stay at home. And second of all, consequently, swings in safer seats that, you know, I don't even think safer Tories should sit pretty for now. Do people think that Labour can do anything about the issues they care most about, about the cost of living? I mean, I would ask you about the NHS, but I think they often feel that Labour can in some way improve the NHS. But what about the cost of living where Labour isn't traditionally thought of as so competent? Yeah, yeah. So so Labour is, in terms of brand, it's the most favourable in the country right now. Normally they compete with the Greens for that because the Greens have quite an inoffensive brand. Now Labour have overtaken the Greens. They're doing quite well in terms of brand brand performance in terms of competence instead of get in terms of getting things done they lead the conservatives convincingly but they don't lead the country convincingly consider this uh, i'm giving you quite ballpark figures here but when you ask them do you think labor will cut the cost of living sort out your taxes manage public services blah blah blah, blah they of course trust labor more than they trust the conservatives but in terms of numbers raw numbers it's like around 38 percent of britain's trust labor to do it and then you have about 25% or 20% who trust the Tories to do it. That's not convincing, is it? That's, I mean, in terms of the lead over the Conservatives, yes. In terms of do you have the confidence of the entire country? No, you do not. Okay, and that this is uh, a slight problem, is that there is a lot of apathy out, out there about what Labour can do. And, and I think Labour strategists know this, which is why if you promise too much, you're going to turn people off because you're, you're seen as delusional, you're seen as, uh, you know, you're not, you're not being serious. It's a hard ask. You've got you've to be on the pitch making the argument, but you've also got to be seen to, you know, talk sense and be, be seen as being able to do it. And um, the consequence of that has been sometimes Labour aren't saying things because if they say things, they won't be believed on it. Right. And that and that that's one of the problems that that's hurt Keir Starmer a little bit. See, like, you know, ratings of competence, Labour has a lead over the Conservatives. Sir Keir has a lead over Rishi Sunak, but it's only by 10 points to 15 points. But when you compare it to the lead David Cameron had over Gordon Brown or Tony Blair had over John Major, it's nothing. It's nothing. Keir Starmer's own ratings are quite, you know, they're good. They're fine. They, they're passable, but they're not landslide worthy. It's just that the party comp- party brand is landslide worthy and the lead on the economy is landslide worthy. You know, there are still weaknesses there. And uh, I think one of them is, yeah, they're straddling that line between saying too much and being losing trust, but saying too little and being ignored. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. Is there name recognition for Rachel Reeves? Do people know who the shadow chancellor is? Mm, not much, not much. And that, 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 it's, it's there. You poll the shadow cabinet, always they don't really get anything. I think Gordon Brown, when he was uh, shadow chancellor in the 90s, is the only perhaps uh, shadow cabinet member who had, a, had any sort of recognition. No, Reeves, Reeves is still a bit of an unknown with voters. Um, although, if I remember rightly, you know, it's around about 20% who like her, 20% of Britain's like her. Now, that isn't to say 80% don't, it's just that 20% do, 
15 to 20% don't, and the rest don't have a clue. That's always been like that for a shadow cabinet member, unfortunately. Finally, let's not talk about the polls. Let's talk about your own experience of being a councillor and what people talk to you about, because you're a Labour councillor in Cheshire. What do people bring up with you spontaneously? Well, I often do when I go door knocking, which I try and do every week. It's just like, you know, I, I just, you know, speak to them and do you want to have a whinge? Do you want to have a whinge about something? Anything I can help you with? And I just came back uh, on Saturday. We had a walk. Uh, Chester, as, as, as you, you probably know, uh, we have some great Roman city walls. There was a section that collapsed in 2020 and it hasn't been repaired. A lot of it is down to the fact that it's on private land. And uh, the private land is, uh, I don't think... I don't think they're letting the council go in and repair it, which is a point of concern for a lot of people. But generally speaking, once you get past that, it is the alleys. The alleys are messy. The alleys are unclean. The bins aren't being collected. What have you done to our roads? You're not sorting our roads. There's no no money for potholes. There's no money for everything. It's always the basics. Is it Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Yeah, it's it's you know once you sort out the basics, the rest will follow through. It's always been that you know don't don't give me grand designs on these huge you know business retail parks that will regenerate your economy and regenerate your city. Don't give me that rubbish. Give me give me give me cleaner streets. Give me cleaner alleys. Give me alleys in which you can put flowers down and benches down. You know you know do a barbecue there with your your neighbours. That's what residents want. They don't they don't want they don't want grand grand business plans. Um, unfortunately, uh, but but the annoying thing is. It's the business lobby that's bigger than the resident lobby, isn't it, normally? So, so that's why councils do what they do, much to the taxpayer's expense. So the red wall in your area is more worried about the Roman wall crumbling. <laughs> yes, yes very, very much so. And we're looking to get it repaired in a few years' time, whenever that comes. Excellent. Thanks so much, Ben. Thank you. And if you like this episode, don't forget that you can back us on Patreon for the fairly small sum of £3 a month. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Eliza Davis-Beard and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. 